That's right. You're listening to Windsor's Inside Pulse, the show that brings you the latest news, views, and opinions right here of our great region in Windsor-Essex. And for our CJA listeners, you are listening to 99.1 FM here on CJM, reaching higher ground. And we remind all our listeners and viewers that the views and opinions expressed on this program are those of Windsor's Inside Pulse, our co-hosts and guests, and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of CGM or its affiliates. We are live on all major podcast services, so if you are listening on your favorite podcast, please make sure that you pound that subscribe button. Please also follow us on Facebook at Windsor's Inside Pulse for show updates. Now, we had some audio issues last week, which we apologize for. Hopefully, all is going to be very well this week, and we thank you for sticking with us as we iron out the podcast kinks. With that being said, my name is Al Teshuba, co-hosting with Daniel Lablisser and Dave Sundin and. All right, let's get right to it. We are still in COVID mode, but stage three is now the new thing we are going to be experiencing. So hopefully it gets more towards normability and uh, hopefully it focuses on those schools opening. But there is some issues right now. Premier Ford has always had a concern about getting those testing numbers up. I remember early on in COVID, he was talking about we got to get the 13,000 a day testing. Now the big issue is he is concerned and he's lashing out at the low COVID-19 testing rates on Essex County farms. And that's part of the reason why there was a little bit of delay here uh, with the agricultural section, hopefully. Thank goodness we still were able to get to stage two for the majority of Essex County and just limited to those spots. But the testing is the key to catch up with everything. And I think it starts from the top up and from the top up laying the concerns. I think it will be implemented very quickly. What do you guys think? Yeah, so I think that certainly testing is the issue, but I do. I feel for the farm owners a bit because there has been some miscommunication here originally when uh, about a month or so ago, when Leamington was the last entity in stage three, um, the, the Ford government put out their plan that was talking about allowing everyone to be tested and workers who tested positive, but then were asymptomatic, they could go work in their own section and keep working. And that was kind of the plan. And then two days later, the health unit was shutting down one of the farms. So th there was a fair bit of miscommunication, I think. And, and I think that's why there, there's a level of distrust right now with the farms. And so I, I think certainly the farms need to be having their people tested. It's a story that we're going to talk about later in the show with, you know, with the issue of mandatory testing. Um, but, but I do understand for, from the farm's perspective, the ones who seem to be behaving the best and volunteering the most to have the testing done, those were the ones that then two days later got shut down by the health unit. So I, I think it's a problem that um, is a communication issue with you've got different levels of different heads of government. And, you know, the left hand at times didn't seem to know what the right hand was saying. So that's my take. Let's uh, maybe let's go to Christine. Christine, your thoughts. Well, I think it's a, a problematic, and, and I mean, uh, to what extent I think uh, Ford already understands that uh, there might be a problem making it mandatory. Uh, but the thing is, uh, we really do need more testing. We need to, again, get that curb to flatten out. And we see a little bit everywhere, countries where they have gotten to the third stage and have opened up the numbers rising, and as a result of the numbers rising, uh, 
thoughts about going back to uh, stricter rules and regulations. We want to be able to start school in September. That is crucial for the economy and for children, for parents, families, everybody, for our well-being, our general well-being. If we don't get it right now, we're going to pay a long time. The, the, the whole fall might, might be ruined. So this testing, absolutely necessary. Uh, I, I think uh, what I, I found a little bit lamentable is that uh, uh, he was uh, quoted saying, I'm just going to cut to the chase here. If you have migrant workers, get them tested. Bottom line, full stop, that's it. The fact is that any greenhouse, any workers, whether they are migrant or not, if you are in a situation like this, they need to be tested. The fact is that we have seen a bit everywhere in the world, if you have a, um, a meat factory, a meat packaging uh, factory, uh, a slaughterhouse of some sort, those are very, very vulnerable to the spread of the disease. It's in the nature of the work and the way people are working to spread this disease very quickly. And we have to also stop the nonchalant uh, behavior and, and the idea that some people are protected and, and somehow uh, they're not going to catch it. If we see the numbers in many countries that have completely opened up, it's the people in their 20s and 30s who are the most, are, are, who are the uh, getting the new cases. The new cases are 20s and 30s. Mind you, yes, they are not ending up in the hospital in the same numbers as those most more vulnerable. However, we don't want a, a, a resurgence of this disease. Dave? And so looking at the, the, the low testing, I think the you're, you're right, Daniel. There's been a lot of miscommunication from the get-go, um, beginning with whether or not migrant workers would even be allowed in the country early on during the pandemic, right? So there's a lot of miscommunication around that. Um, some people in government were saying yes, some were saying no, a lot of confusion. Uh, then what the requirements were once workers uh, came in. And so, you know, I, I know there's not a lot of sympathy, um, at least, you know, where, where I'm from, not, not a lot of sympathy for greenhouse owners who are seen as, as wealthy and should take care of this problem themselves. There's a lot of big businesses that have had government money thrown their way. If the government is truly concerned about this, um, then assure um, greenhouse operators that they're going to continue to be able to operate, uh, ensure them that there's costs associated with um, housing migrant workers who test positive somewhere else, that they're going to get funds to help them do that. Um, you know, whatever has to be done in order to ensure um, that the greenhouse operators cooperate. That, that's been the issue so far, right? The, the government went as far as providing um, uh, at the Shirk Center in Leamington, a, uh, a setup for mass testing, and no one came, um, or very few came, so few that they, they warranted closing down the testing center. So if, if you want testing to happen, there's got to be assurances given to um, the greenhouse operators that it's not going to completely decimate their business. And, and further, for, for all of our benefit, it's not going to decimate the food chain either. Right? The things that are being grown here, uh, by and large, are things that we consume uh, that are vital to the, the grocery store food chain that we all rely on. So we want to find a solution that works for them because it works for us. All right. Well, Al, on this issue of cooperating with farms, why don't you uh, tell us about what the, uh, the health unit is or isn't doing and uh, take us into our next story. Well, the problem is the health unit is leading uh, an overall discussion of COVID for our region, basically on its own, 
uh, without real much input from, in my opinion, much input from the politicians or council. And they're really taking the lead. I think they have a lot of power for unelected people. Just as a, a side note, uh, they're making decisions that really, these are like very big decisions that normally politicians would be making, at least they're backed by, by voters. That's my first comment on the health unit. But they are making a decision that they won't identify workplaces that are struggling with COVID-19 and the outbreaks. Now, I understand the decision because you don't want to negatively uh, stigmatize that particular business. I guess you want to give them a chance first to try to redeem it. I mean, it's almost as if they were to come out and say some restaurant has uh, rats and it's a terrible. As soon as that gets broken out, even if they fix it and make it the cleanest place in the world, that stigma will be reported and it'll be very difficult to overcome it. So I understand the reason why they're doing it. Um, I, I'm surprised they were asked the question and they actually had to come out to say that they won't do it. I don't think people were expecting it. I, I, I would rather that they just work cooperatively with the politicians, uh, definitely with the government agencies, just do their job, maintain their proper, uh, I think, parameters, which is to try to keep Windsor Essex as healthy as possible. I think they need to minimize some of their news announcements uh, as well. I think they were good early on, but nowadays just kind of just focus on getting the job done. Versus um, work with the governments. I'm okay with this decision not introducing it. It just really can jeopardize a business, uh, especially if it's temporary, and then, and then they fix it, and then they get the stigma. So I, I get the idea. Yeah, so I'll, I'll jump in on this, and I, uh, I actually, this is one thing that I, I agree with the health unit on. Um, I, I think that the best approach here is when a business is not cooperating, and you want them to cooperate. That's who you name and shame. But if there's been, if Good. they are, if yeah. they are cooperating. And there's a breakout, but that breakout isn't going to put people's health health at risk. I do think that there is um, dis the discretion that ought to be used is to not name and shame, because if we want people to cooperate, then I think that it's not naming them if people's health are not at risk. Now, on the flip side, if they're not cooperating, um, then you know we're gonna, I think that we point that out to the community. But but I do think that it's very if a farm through no fault of its own has been cooperating and because they've said gee our thousand workers are going to get tested and then you know 50 come back positive we shouldn't be punishing that farm by saying you've got 50 50 positive tests because they were the ones that cooperated so well i have you know i think that there's lots of criticism that uh to go around with with the health unit and they've done some things very well and i think they've done some things poorly i think that this one they're correct on which is not to name um workplaces where there have been outbreaks provided that the public isn't at, seen to be at immediate risk or you need to do contract tracing or something so uh dave your thoughts yeah i guess um my comments on this topic are that um i really what the health unit needs to do as well is change their messaging, right? So um, a lot of the, the naming issues revolve around, they describe it as an outbreak, even if it's not really an outbreak, right? So the, the health unit criteria is if there's one case, it's an outbreak. Um, and, and that's problematic because if the, the, the um, public just sees the, the news story saying outbreak at this nursing home. Whereas if the story was this nursing home has one reported case in a, um, a healthcare worker that uh, works there two days a week, and it's not feared that there's going to be, um, you know, uh, any real danger to the, the population that lives there, 
that's a much different way to view that story, right? So as soon as you name, but you name and just say there's an outbreak at this location, I think it's very misleading to the public as to the true extent of the danger. Um, and I appreciate why the health unit is doing that. That's just their, their internal protocols. They, they define an outbreak as a case, but they might want to consider how they frame the message and the media w might want to um, make sure that they get the message across very clearly that, um, th that just because there's a case at a Walmart or there's a case at a nursing home doesn't mean that it's the end of the world and that, that, that everyone there is bound to get it and um, there's, there's going to be death. So, um, so Chris Christine. Christine. Yes, I agree um, that uh, I, I haven't always understood uh, the uh, points of how how the healthcare unit has has uh, uh, transmitted their messages. I think that they have underestimated the public's ability to understand and to. I think it's just like with teaching; you have to explain why you're doing things sometimes and. By doing that, you'll have much more, uh, much better compliance and uh, better, more respect than being told, oh, it's this, this, this. But again, not knowing the full story. Uh, I think this has been uh, I, I, at least my experience of, of the way I've understood the messaging and also the perception, uh, at least the way I've seen it, is that there is a, a strife between uh, the healthcare unit and the politicians, and I think that has been uh, too bad for our, our area. Again, I think they should have been on on it a little bit uh, sooner, including uh, explaining very from the beginning that if people got uh, tested and f were found to be positive that they would be taken care of. These are migrant workers, and I think they were very worried about it. In fact, that was one of the stories that came out, was that in fact that, um, if it, and, and might have been the, the reason why two people died among the migrant workers, because they they waited too long to, to say that they were ill. That was the story that came out. So I don't know. I think, of course, it's it's nice to second guess in, in hindsight. I think it's been a very difficult uh, job for politicians and the healthcare unit. And but I think communication is the key. And I think uh, educating the public and telling them and not undermining. Well, them. Uh, in terms of the uh, the tools that government has available or doesn't have available to. Uh, to enforce testing, I think that sort of leads us into our next topic. So, uh, so Dave, what are some of the things that are being talked about vis-a-vis uh, -vis testing? So, uh, I believe you're referring to the the articles that have been uh, published recently about uh, mandatory testing among migrant workers and whether or not that's constitutional to do. So, thanks for um, having me uh, line up this uh, having me line up this topic, Dan. I haven't uh, looked at constitutional laws in first year law school and maybe my high school civics class. Not like we we deal with it in everyday practice. Um, but um, in, in, in Canada, unlike some other countries, uh, such as the U.S. and Canada, constitutional protections generally apply not just to Canadians, but to, to anyone within our, our borders and, and, and even abroad. Um, so uh, the, the question becomes, can you actually single out a specific group of people um, based, on their, based on their employment and say you are obligated to, um, you're obligated to, to be tested, whether you like it or not? Um, now, the practical reality is, even if there's a constitutional challenge, 
the, the result might be mandatory testing before there's any interference with the government's ability to do that. There might be a solution on the back end, but up front, it appears that the government wanted to do this. The government could probably implement it and, and move on quite quickly. So uh, what are your thoughts on, on mandatory testing, uh, Christine? Yes, well, my question actually was to you, um, Dave, really, about how is this different from exacting or demanding that students come to school vaccinated? Is there a difference? Well, I suppose that there, um, uh, there is in a, in a degree, I'll let Daniel weigh in on this too, but the only way that um, it passes constitutional muster on the, um, uh, on the school front is not just public health, but also that there is exemptions built into the system, right? So if someone doesn't want to be vaccinated, they can rely on the constitutional rights to freedom of religion or freedom of belief to say, I'm not going to get it. Um, so that there's an out there. Whereas I'm not sure what your out would be uh, in the context of a migrant farm worker saying, it's against my religious beliefs to have a swab and put it in my nose. Um, I'm, I, I doubt that's gonna, that, that's gonna um, be what it is, but there's, there's exemptions built in. The, the public purpose being that it's for public health, but then there being safeguards put in place. Um, so I guess the question comes down to what safeguards can the government put in place to say, and perhaps the, the whole issue of public health is enough to say that th this is a, a proper breach of someone's constitutional rights because um, section one of the charter uh, saves it to say this is a reasonable infringement. And here's why it's for, for public health reasons. And it's to save the economy to get us back on track. So let's uh, throw to Daniel, the other lawyer here to see if he's got any different opinions on this. I actually, I think the question Christine raised which is a really good one, which is how can you say that children have to be vaccinated for school, but then somehow you can't force workers to be tested for work? And, and I, th I think that that's an excellent point. Um, but but I, I look at this, I think that Dave, Dave, I think you're right, that even if, if this is an infringement, it's probably justified given, um, you know, given what's allowed under Section 1 of the Constitution. Um, which is reasonable infringements, and there's a, there's a test for that. But the, I don't know that this actually has to get to this. I, I think that instead of mandating it, you create a de facto mandating by, by you say, okay, well, workers, if you want to be permitted, especially for the foreign workers, if you want to be permitted to continue to work in this country, you're going to have to sign up for a test weekly. We're not, we're not going to stick a swab down your nose, but if you're not going to volunteer to have that, you're not going to continue to have your work permit. And similarly, I look at the farms and I say, if farms, if you're not going to allow us to show up in your parking lot once a week and you're going to send all your people out to get tested, then you're going to be closed down because you're having breakouts. So, so to me, it's a, I don't know that the stick is as, or whether this is a carrot or stick issue. I think that there's a way to make this so that it's not, truly mandatory but that the opt-out means you're going to opt out of working um and, and and i think that that's really the, the the stronger the stronger route here it's that if you don't volunteer to have so the farms are going to have to have basically clearance to continue to operate and as a condition of getting that clearance to continue to operate they're going to have to voluntarily participate so that's how i look at at uh, at dealing with um, dealing with this issue, but it, it's certainly going to be interesting to watch as to uh, as to the, the the constitutional question here. All right. So, with regards to employment, I think many like as teachers, I had to make sure, and all teachers had to make sure we had a TB test done, and we didn't have to license. So, that already is in place. And it was before COVID. 
that was like the big one, the most contagious one. Uh, I think the employment aspect that if you don't pass a TB test or confirm that you don't have it or are tested, then you don't have employment. Okay. What's going to happen if Christine, uh, Christine's point of can you mandate kids to be vaccinated in order to go back to school? That's different. No, you don't have a right to work at a particular job, but a child does have a right to receive public education. So is the argument going to be, well, it doesn't matter. You don't have to be vaccinated because if all the other kids are vaccinated, they're protected. So you could choose not to be if you want to. Or will it be, no, 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 uh, we have to minimize the amount of spread and therefore everyone has to be vaccinated. That's going to be a discussion, I think, that's going to happen in the next few months. They're already talking about potentially having a vaccine. So that's that's around the corner. Windsor's inside pulse is picking up. It's going to affect Windsor, Ontario, Canada, North America, you name it. Yes, the fact is that for a few years, we saw the numbers of not up-to-date uh, students, students who were not up-to-date with their vaccines, uh, rise. And we saw this probably all through the years 2010 and beyond. And then a couple years ago, it suddenly... They, 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 there was a big crunch. Healthcare unit really went back and asked people and, and mandated, and they had a certain time limit to get the, the students vaccinated. I think all of this is possible. These are choices. People have, have the choice. If you want to stay home and, and live in a, in a, a, a smaller bubble, that's fine. If you want to be working on an, in, in a farm, in a very open space, you have to test and see if you are healthy. And I think, I think really, uh, I was sad to see the numbers and the numbers indicate that it hadn't been communicated sufficiently. The, the seriousness of the disease, number one, I still have people around that I hear talking as though this is not a big deal. And then um, because 19 out of 176 farms actually complying to it and participating to on-site testing efforts uh, given by, by, the, uh, by health uh, officials, I find that kind of sad. It really disappoints me that the civic duty, that people don't understand their civic duty. It's not about me. It's about how I am as a citizen and how I care for the rest of my community. And this is not a time uh, of, of, of uh, where individualism is going to get us great marks. It really has to do with being civic-minded and community-minded. And I think if you explain this, I think people yeah, will pick up. Sadly, much of the um, uh, dialogue around those who refuse to social distance or wear masks or to, to really be concerned about COVID-19 period is very similar to the anti-vaxxer movement as far as the uh, uh, the noise and the, the statements they're making, which is just conspiracy theorists um, out there spreading falsehoods. And it's unfortunate um, that social media has provided such a platform to spread this kind of misinformation. But I think what it comes down to, right, is um, in that dialogue of the anti-vaxxer movement, you hear a lot of individualism. It's about me, it's about me, it's about my rights as opposed to what is good for the collective, because there truly are some people who, who can't get things like a vaccine. So even when, when there's a COVID-19 vaccine available at some point, hopefully in the not too distant future, um, there are some people who, because of pre-existing conditions, will not be able to get that vaccine. 
And so if you're healthy and can receive it, you're getting that protects them. Um, but unfortunately, there's a segment of our population and a growing segment, unfortunately, who don't believe it's their duty um, as, as a citizen to help out. So I, I, I agree with you on that point, Christine. Yeah. Yeah. All righty, Christine, you want to take us to our next topic? Yes, to the beach. Standpoint Beach is reopening or is at least thinking of reopening. That is the city of Windsor preparing. Actually, it's like it's so tantalizing. We've been waiting. I mean, who doesn't go to the beach at least once a year or around? We have several beautiful beaches, although uh, they have been plagued in the last few years with uh, E. coli, with uh, uh, with other things like uh, I always talk about those terrible two-legged creatures that make incredible messes of our of our beaches, uh, the uh, the Canada geese. But uh, apart from that, the fact is that it's it's a staple to a summer to bring your kids to the beach and and bring your your um, I don't know, the, you know, little sand shovels and everything else. And it's just so much fun. And it, it people have been very scared. And of course, we know that this year, the uh, uh, care unit was not going to test the waters. And so we weren't going to be told exactly how much E. coli was there or whether it was open or not. And so, uh, but they are going to reopen Sandy, uh, Sandpoint Beach this Wednesday. So Wednesday, the 29th of uh, July. And uh, uh, the fact is that I can only imagine that, uh, that it's going to be uh, extremely popular. But again, let's hope people respect. And in fact, this is something that uh, uh, Mayor Drew Dilkin said, told AM800 was that let's not try to, let's not recreate what is happening south of our border where people really are forgetting, uh, are enjoying the summer so much. They, they are losing sight of the fact that COVID is still here and we still need to abide by the, the regulations or the, you know, prescriptions yeah, and, and in place. I can place. tell you, unfortunately, for more or less the past, and I've mentioned the previous show, so, so sorry if you've heard this twice from me, but uh, for more or less the past two months, Sandpoint Beach effectively has been open. Um, I take my son to stop 26 uh, for ice cream uh, once a week, once every two weeks. And every time I go, that beach is packed. People have ignored the barriers, knocked the barricades down. Um, no one's even enforcing it. So um, it's nice to see the city finally officially opening it so that the, um, uh, those committing crimes are no longer committing crimes because it was, it was happening regardless. You call it crimes? I Al, what about you? Yeah, okay. Al, what about you? Is your beach yeah, body ready crime. to go for the summer? You know me. I, I'd i like to see things open up, keep social distance, wear a mask. Uh, you know, I think we got it. I mean, just today I was getting uh, from Service Ontario. I had to go there for upgrade on my health card. And everybody just knows what they're doing. And they have their masks. They're six feet apart. I think, I think Canadians are just just generally more cooperative in the sense of, of, you know, understanding the circumstances, following the rules. And I think we're okay. I think we're going to be just fine getting through this better than other countries um, because of our attitude and our, and our willingness to, to cooperate and follow the rules and be sensitive uh, to other people. So I, I'm not worried about it. I trust the stages. I trust Doug Ford and uh, his team uh, to put, 
you know, reasonable measures in place, because I mean, this would be very serious if things start going backwards. I mean, it'd be an election killer for, for any politicians if you start to put in place and then it goes backwards. So we just generally have to ride things out. The one thing I'm pleased about, I'm not hearing overcrowdedness in any hospitals throughout Ontario. Um, I think all of that has been covered. I think the worst is over with regards to, I think it's generally paced right now. Uh, I think wearing masks uh, was something that should have been suggested much earlier on, but nonetheless, people are doing it. And uh, step by step, we're going to get through this. The, the big thing for me is what's going to happen with the students come September going to school. That, that to me is it. So we got one more month to figure it out. I just had one more thing to say because, uh, Al, you mentioned compared to other countries, I think we do have a definite advantage over other countries or many countries. We have a lot of space. And space is really, I think, True. going is playing in our favor. And uh, those countries where mm -hmm. people are living in much closer um, proximity to each other are having a really hard time. I would say, in fact, if you look at Canada, uh, I still have no understanding as to why Quebec has fared so much more poorly and the rest of Canada. And that's going to be certainly something that uh, people, whether in the healthcare or politicians, will have to uh, uh, find out. Uh, definitely, it may be that Montreal, the people are more closely together, are using uh, transit, public transit. I don't know what the reason. Well, are. I'm, I'm mm -hmm. going to keep my, uh, my my mouth shut on any theories as to why things might be going worse in Quebec and uh, and take us into our next story. But I'm glad to see that the I'm glad to see that the beach is reopened. So so uh, uh, a major announcement this week from the Ford government, which is kind of the Ford government and the Trudeau government, is that in Ontario, there has been $4 billion pledged for municipalities. So we discussed this a couple weeks ago. The city had a $30 million COVID hole that they had to dig out of. The uh, Mayor Dilkins was basically saying, look, feds and look, province, we don't care where the money comes from, but we can't be getting this out of the uh, the property tax base. And so it was really lobbying the province and the feds to send money along. So the Ford government announced this week that um, including transfers down from the feds, there's going to be a $4 billion pot of money for Ontario municipalities. Two billion of that will go directly to municipalities um, just in general. And then the other two billion is going to help with some of the larger transit expenses. So that's going to go to some of the bigger cities. Um, and uh, and I actually I think that this is quite positive. I think that if if you just take that first two billion and you divide that by the number of residents in Ontario, which is about. 15 million that's about 130 dollars a person so if we don't know the funding formula yet but if the funding formula ends up being per capita and you multiply 130 dollars times the 220,000 residents of windsor that's about 29 or 30 billion dollars or 29 or 30 million bucks so we said we had about a 30 million dollar hole and if there's a pro rata um, division of that first $2 billion for getting the transit money that has the chance to, uh, you know, to, to really dig us out of this hole entirely. What I'm going to be focused, what I'm going to be following is, is the money that's divided up going to be based on, um, based on your need because you didn't, you know, you didn't tighten your, tighten your belt, or is it going to be a, uh, a division based, purely on population. So that's what I'm going to be following. Uh, Al, let's go to you first on this topic. What are your thoughts? 
this is 100% macroeconomic theory. You cannot devalue a city or devalue a country, let them go into the hole, because then you will lose it on unemployment, you'll lose it on your uh, rating, and you'll lose it on home evaluations. So uh, if you don't put in the money uh, for cities, I, I'm just going back even to CERB, for example, people who lost their jobs getting $2,000 a month to carry you over. If they didn't get that, then they wouldn't be able to get food, pay their rent, crime would go up, uh, the landlords wouldn't receive the rent, they couldn't pay their mortgage. It's a trickle down effect. So you're better off just having the government give you $2,000 to cover it for a time being. Uh, now, mind you, that can never be a situation where you're better off to receive $2,000 to go work for $3,000, okay? You never want to disincentivize working. But for the time being, if your job wasn't there, what choice do you have? This particular case is very, very similar. This is like CERB for the municipalities, okay? They have to receive their debt uh, difference. And when that uh, debt is coming from the main source, the federal government, along with the provincial approval, uh, although it's you know further debt on there, it can't affect the little guy. It cannot affect the people, can't affect, in this case, the cities, uh, where we then would tap into property Taxes is the main source, which then would skew property values and diminish on a, on a bigger basis. So it's a macroeconomics. I agree with it. It should come from the top down. It's a pandemic. It's unprecedented. And it's a one-time thing. I'm not a fan at all of running deficits or debts. But in this circumstances, you can't affect the little guy. Uh, and that's so, what the city uh, so is. So, Christine, is, this, uh, is the money coming down from Ottawa and Toronto going to dig us out of our budget hole, or are we going to see a, a tax increase on account of COVID? What do you think? I don't think we're going to see a tax increase. I actually got my taxes today on two properties uh, that, that I own, uh, and uh, I can tell you that uh, the one property, which is in a, in a, a more modest area, the tax rate did not go up, and on the one where uh, it's a more um, uh, a, a higher income uh, housing, it's it it did go up. So I think this has already been factored in somehow. I don't know how or why, but there is that already being worked in. The second thing is that I believe that uh, it is really necessary to get these monies uh, to uh, to make sure that we don't go further in the hole than necessary. I mean, it is happening. Uh, I would also say that, frankly, CERB did what it was supposed to. And I think the message was very well explained by the government because they said it is the money we give a person to stay at home. Their job was to stay at home. So I think that's an important uh, uh, thing. And it shouldn't it, it evidently continue on in the future we really have to try to uh but it's interesting i've i've been talking to people for example in education in a private school and many jobs were immediately uh eradicated through covid from the one day to the next jobs were lost but there were new jobs that have come along and i think we're going to see a little bit everywhere we're going to see new jobs popping up. For example, I believe that the number of people who are going to be cleaning, cleaning and, and sanitizing various things, this is going to be on the increase. We're also going to have um, 
I mean, there are going to be other things that are going to come up. For example, maybe in the environment, this is maybe a time to do a shift with, with respect to our environment. I don't know yet how, but I, I am convinced that we have the uh, initiative, the, the imagination to, to, to redirect our energies. Well, uh, this has been a good chat. It's something that we're certainly going to be following as the funding formula comes out. We're going to take a brief break and we'll be back with you just in a, in a, in a few moments. And we are back. So uh, a week or two ago, we mentioned the issue of council delegations and Council this week met, and they are reinstituting delegations for next week's meeting for the August 4th meeting, I believe. There's also some other talk about the format that council meetings are going to come back, and I believe that there's a hybrid approach that's going to hopefully take place starting in September or when we reach phase three, which will allow some people to participate remotely and some people to uh, some people to participate back in our brand spanking new council chambers. So uh, so that's uh, that's an update from this Monday's council meeting. Al, what are your thoughts on getting back to delegations? I think delegations are the cornerstone of any democracy. It's not enough that you just have the uh, council, which, by the way, are elected officials, true enough, but they don't know as much as the people on the ground being affected who are passionate enough to come as volunteers, spend their evenings, do some research, and actually give their point of view for five minutes. Uh, delegations and listening from the people has got to be part of our democracy on big decisions. Yes, it's COVID uh, for a year, maybe a year and a half, maybe two, but some of these decisions are going to last 50 years, 100 years in our city. So it's important to at least listen to the people and really get the, the input that's needed. So I'm a big fan of delegation. The technology is there with Zoom meetings for council. Why can't it be there for regular folks who are able to log in? Or even set up a meeting place where they can go in, take the microphone, safe space, masks, whatever. And if you can't afford to be on a computer, but actually have it set up so delegates can come in. Either way, get let the people speak. Christine, should council care what uh, what the people have to say? Yes, absolutely. I think it's uh, it, and especially that to be quite honest, uh, people who take time out, get involved, present to council, it's all a bit intimidating for many people. Uh, the fact is they are passionate about something. Something is really, really mm -hmm. uh, bothering them, and they want to tell council why it is they don't see it the, their, their way or something to that effect. So uh, I think it is very important to listen to people. Dave, yes, definitely. Dave your thoughts? Yeah, other local councils have been doing this for a long time. Um, so I'm surprised it took Windsor as long as it did to finally um, say that this was that this was okay, um, that, that they should set up a, a method to do this when you've got small municipalities doing it um, and not seeming to be having an issue with it. So it could take uh, probably a little bit too long over the city of Windsor. But I'm glad it's happening. And I, I credit uh, Daniel for raising on the show a few weeks ago. Had people probably listening and, and clued in and said, we need to change this. Well, I, I think Howard Weeks gets all the uh, credit for raising this issue. So, uh, so, uh, so, so bravo, Howard. The, uh, the, the biggest story out of uh, the council meeting this, uh, this past week was the approval of the $4.9 billion. Now, that is billion with a B sewer master plan so we know that we've had flooding uh flooding problems in windsor well for ages but certainly a number of major flood events over the last uh over the last decade and council has uh has commissioned a sewer master plan to deal with this 
And, uh, and that came to council on Monday night and the sewer master plan was approved. Now there's no, there's not funding sources for most of this $4.9 billion, but there's a, uh, there's a roadmap for when we're going to spend sewer money for the next 50 or a hundred years. Um, here's what we're going to be doing. So, uh, so let's go around the horn on this, Christine, $4.9 billion for sewers over the next God knows how long. What are your thoughts? <laughs> Well, it's exciting. It's exciting because I think there's a uh, there's been a, a real understanding that this is where we need to to change the way we were doing things, and we are going to adapt, and we're not going to ever let things just be and 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 deteriorate to the extent that it was. So the idea of letting sewers for eighty years and then all of a sudden panicking because everything needs to be uh, uh, looked at all at once, which is beyond anybody's means. It looks like now we are going to have a plan and we're going to be able to take care of it and put capital uh, monies into it as maintenance as opposed to trying to fix things when they are already you know gone dave yes, thoughts so, so the nice thing about this plan is uh, a couple of things one it, it seems to be a, a triage approach so the worst areas will be dealt with first um with the long-term plan being to limit the amount of flooding it's not going to eliminate it but it's going to limit it i think they, they recognize that you'll never be able to completely eliminate flooding but there's certain areas where it's happening far too frequently and they're going to try to make improvements to those areas first with the idea of being eventually you limit to the point where uh, it's workable um, and, and continue to make improvements. And so this is a multi-generational um, plan to finally address uh, sewer capacity in a big way. And so hopefully all works out. Al, $4.9 billion. That's a big number. So it's interesting. I asked my wife about uh, her thoughts in this $4.9 billion, And her first reaction was, are property taxes going up or have we actually been paying towards this infrastructure plan uh, with all the levies we've been doing on our utility bills for many years. So I'm hoping the funding is is moderately uh, spent and adjusted from things like that. It's not a heavy hit. I think we already have pretty high taxes comparatively. Uh, but mind you, our valuations on properties are, are going up. So this should pay for it. Uh, you got to have areas with good sewers, can't have flooding. We also need to tap into the federal government, provincial government for assistance on these big projects. And $4.9 billion, you're hiring Windsor rights, you're hiring Windsor companies. So the money's going to stay uh, circulated for the most part. And if you look at some of the big projects Windsor has done in the past, whether it be EC Row or the Grand Mare's Drain, relatively speaking, uh, from those dollars to future dollars, maybe that was like $5 billion. It costs money for infrastructure, but it's a good investment overall. Yeah, if yeah. done intelligently, Dave, yeah, efficiently, yeah, so and to solve major problems. Billion. So that, that's today's dollars. That's the the plan what it's going to cost but you're right i think um each year when they're teeing up which projects are going to proceed that year it'd be a great idea to look at okay well what provincial and federal monies are available for us to tap into to try to offset these costs because to say that um the city the, the resident city of windsor can can you know pay for all this without looking for uh help from high levels of government um would be crazy if, if those funding sources are available it needs to happen and if it needs to happen on our dime so be it but i think that the preference is let's uh, see what we can do to get um High levels of government to kick in some funds to help to help make this a reality as soon as possible. Yeah, and I think that you're right there, Dave. I think that this is the the wish list of when we have the next four point nine billion dollars that we're going to spend. This is what we're going to spend it on, and certainly part of that is to have. 
what we call shovel-ready projects so that as money becomes available from the feds in the province, ideally, you know, if we have a $30 million project and the feds in the province each have matching grant funds, we're spending 10 and the feds in the province each kick in their own 10. So, so this, is, uh, this is something that we're certainly going to be living with for, well, probably the rest of all of our lives. Uh, the, the next story that I wanted to touch on uh, briefly was uh, Mayor Dilkins held a virtual Ward 7 meeting last week. What I found interesting about this was that the meeting was convened not on Zoom where you could join in, but using an auto dialer for Ward 7 residents. And apparently it only went to people who had landlines. So at 7 p.m. or whatever, they get a ring and they pick up the phone and say, and it says, you know, if you want to join this call with Mayor Dilkins, hold the line and uh, and uh, and we'll have a chat. So so Mayor Dilkins convened this last week. There's been discussion about using something similar for the uh, the ward meetings for the next year because of COVID. But I'm curious to see what you, what your thoughts are on this uh, this process for Mayor Dilkins convening this mini ward meeting with an auto dialer and uh, and uh, and so on and so forth. So let's start with Al on this one. Any technology that's used right now to connect with people is I'm in favor of. I mean, it is you have to bring it to the people. Never mind COVID. This is also a, a very, I mean, this is not brand new technology for campaigns. There's been many candidates that say, hey, we're about to host a town hall. If you want to join us, press one. The technology has been there. I think it's good for the mayor to do that. Uh, Ward 7, I feel sorry for them. They've been without a counselor for ever since Eric got, got elected. And at the end of the day, it's been pushed up because of COVID. I, I think that's good for G1 Gill. It gives him more time because he was going to jump in late, just for the record. Um, but at the end of the day, uh, the Ward 7 residents need to be updated. They're not currently represented, so the mayor has to be almost a de facto Dave, counselor, yeah, so I, good I for him to a good idea reach out to the them. System. I, I get that it can be seen as not being overly inclusive because a lot of people don't have landlines now, um, but I get the rationale for it, which was to basically make sure that it was Ward 7 residents attending on this call. If you simply sent out um, uh, Zoom details, um, every, any, anyone and everyone could have joined in, including um, uh, people who I'm sure um, are, are very well-meaning um, citizens of the city, but be weighing in on their own issues uh, in the various parts of the city they live in, as opposed to city seven meetings. We might have someone from Ward 4 who's very passionate about certain issues calling in and saying, um, uh, you know what, I got these concerns, but, but you're not dealing with Ward 7 issues at that point in time. So I appreciate why he, Chris. Why he did it, and um, and, uh, you know, unfortunately, what I've seen on social media is a, a lot of attacks over it saying, well, it, it should have been Zoom. It should have been something else. It should have been something more inclusive. But I, I appreciate why, why it happened the way it did. So actually, I'll, I'll jump in on that point. And actually, Dave, you make a really good point about having people who are not in Ward 7 jumping in if this is a Zoom. And it's something that I hadn't even really thought of. I, uh, I personally don't like the auto dialer. That feels a bit campaigny to me. That feels like the type of a tool that a campaign uses. And, uh, you know, and there's something that just feels sort of politically icky about that to me, as opposed to, I, I, I like the engagement. I certainly really like the engagement, but I don't like using the auto dialer. I certainly don't like an auto dialer that can only contact uh, people with, with, uh, with landlines. To me, that says that you're targeting people probably over about the age of, uh, 50, because I don't know that many people under the age of 50 these days even have landlines. Um, and, you know, and then my uh, my antenna goes off. Gee, 
people over the age of 50, oh, what do we call those? We call those vote with landlines. We call those voters. Um, but, at, but at the same time, I do, uh, I, I do commend the engagement, but I think that we need to think through how we're going to do this going forward. Christine, your thoughts? Well, that's interesting what you said. I, I hadn't really uh, thought about that. Of course, uh, many people don't have landlines. I know that at the uh, at the school, uh, they would send auto dial uh, messages for parents uh, about a, a meeting or a, a special uh, event at the school, etc. And I think it's a good way to reach people. And it's also, uh, it was a good way of not including people from other wards. So there were two things there. Maybe at some other point, there might be a, a way of uh, contacting people on their cell phones this way as well. I'm not sure. But at any rate, I thought it was a very good uh, initiative. And I think it's uh, important for residents to become aware of uh, what is going on in their, in their ward and to become informed in order to make a good uh, a good decision when the time comes when they will be able to vote. So yeah, I was I thought it was pretty good. It, it, it's an, I think the the mayor has done some really good uh, outreaching to to the ward in a time where really they should have already had a uh, uh, a new councillor. All right, Christine, do you want to lead us into our next story then? Yes. Sandwich Street is getting a, a makeover uh, on account of really the Gordie Howe Bridge team. And we had heard this uh, a while ago. I wasn't expecting it to happen this quickly. We knew that when uh, the Gordie Howe Bridge was uh, starting, that part of the deal was those, uh, those communities that were really going to be uh, disturbed, if you will, by all of the uh, new... Uh, uh, construction were going to be uh, compensated for this disturbance and uh, sandwich in particular was going to get 12 million dollars and I didn't expect it to happen this quickly I thought that we would see it at the end of the construction of the bridge but here it is <clears throat> about three kilometers of uh, sandwich street is going to undergo a major tw uh, 12 million dollar overhaul and uh, it will include bike lanes, street lights, planters, benches, repaving of the road. I mean, all of that is is marvelous. Uh, already, parts of the of sandwich are very nice. And uh, I think what needs to happen also is to really have already an idea of what it is we want people to see in sandwich, and then what we want them to, what we want that will really attract them and have them stay there. That's the, the key, that we already start thinking of the next step. Al, tell us about Sandwich Town. Your thoughts? Well, let's back up a second. It was supposed to be $20 million as the community fund uh, as compensation for Sandwich to be sandwiched between two bridges, so to speak. And their $20 million, I think, should have been uh, a little bit more input towards uh, the people. If the people had voted or had a committee or some type of suggestions or online survey that, hey, we want to spend 12 million of it to improve bike lanes, street lights for sandwich, that's great. I will tell you though, there should be at least a million dollars set up for a huge sandwich town promotion. Some type of marketing where the businesses can flourish, have uh, almost like a promotion right to the sandwich downtown BIA, sandwich BIA 
uh, old Sandwich Town BIA. This is uh, this is a once in a lifetime chance to do something with federal money of twenty million dollars. Yes, I believe in infrastructure and appealing it, but you also have to tell the people to come to it. Maybe if they were to host events or some uh, carnival or family outing or uh, open streets or something with additional promotion money. So I'm also looking not just the infrastructure, but also the marketing aspect or maybe assisting with uh, newcomers for rents to uh, give them some assistance to launch new businesses. All right. Well, I would Al, prefer to see Al, more input. Al, your phone's from, cut. Uh, your uh, your your recorder's cutting out again. So I, I'm I'm going to jump in and help you out here because you don't have to worry about the the, the folks okay. in Sandwich Town getting cheated here because the 12 million bucks for uh for repairing the road in Sandwich Town is actually in addition to the community benefits plan. So there's a there's a 20 million dollar community benefits plan that's divided basically 10 million between the sandwich community and 10 million between the Delray community over in Michigan. And then on top of that, the, the Gordie Howe bridge company is paying to rebuild the road. So the 12 million's on top. So, uh, so all, all the other nice little bells and whistles that are, are being done on top of that. So, uh, so, so the people of sandwich town after being really, uh, really whipped around for a long time having to deal with the uh you know being at the foot of the ambassador bridge are getting a nice little uh a, a nice little boost here for uh you know to help with the fact that they are still sandwiched be between two bridges so uh so so this is not uh this is not a replacement for the existing money al i'll come back to you then if So if it's not if it's not a replacement, then the the other money, then they can, we got to make sure that the residents can still have input and focus on getting the commercial successful, the businesses, some type of discount, some type of promotion, some type of events, because you can have the most beautiful streets in the world, and if you don't have anything to go to, it won't make a difference. So I, I'm glad the components are separate and added on, but don't forget the first part: get people to Sandwich Town. It's historic. It's beautiful. All we've you know heard week after week, it seems, for the past number of years, there's a good news story coming out of Sandwich. So it's, it's certainly, um, things are, have improved drastically there. It's a great little strip to visit. Um, the roadway itself is actually great leading into Sandwich Town. I just hope they rebuild the, the road going out to, uh, to, to EC Road. That's brutal. Once you pass through uh, the settled area of Sandwich Town into the uh, industrial zone, it's like taking your life into your own hands. It's such a bad roadway. So nice to be, you know, have, have that uh, fixed up. Uh, and so it's nice uh, nice way to see traffic be able to town both sides and, and pleasant. All right. Well, Al, why don't you take us to uh, to some good news? The end to a uh, the end to a never ending saga. <laughs> well, Christine and I live in Ward Ten. This was such a big issue throughout uh, municipal elections. The, the the hum, I remember Al Magnus coming down the street running, I'm going to take care of the Windsor hum. Really? Okay, let's find out where to. Now, he did get funding. Uh, even Jeff Watson assisted, making sure there was funding in place to investigate it. But I got to tell you, I think virtually anybody knew that it was coming from Zug Island, and uh, that was the highest likely place, the vibrations coming in. What's big, big industrial U.S. steel, for example? And at the end of the day, it's not surprising with U.S. Steel closing down and minimizing their operations, let's say, uh, that the hum is closing, is, is stopped as well. And it's identified in that way. So, yeah, for 10 years, it was the Windsor hum, the big mystery. I never thought it was that big of a mystery, but there you go. It's over. Dave? You know, the, the proof is in the pudding, right? So if Zug Island, um, U.S. Steel idles and the, the hum stops, it, it tells you that's where it's from.
right? So uh, the, the the mystery is finally solved. Christine, what do you what do you think? Are we uh, are we finally out of the, uh, the 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 Windsor hum? I think so. I think that was it. Um, it's a good it's good news you know I have to say personally I never uh, was in a place where I actually was uh, suffering from uh, the vibrations and the noises but I can imagine how taxing it would be to have the a sound it would wear you out if you're hearing this all the time so i'm uh, i'm happy it was solved the, the finally solved i i think it could have been solved a little bit earlier i don't think it was that mysterious to think that it might be our you know the industrial uh, sector that that was causing it, but I'm glad that it's finished. Yeah, I, I think that this is definitely a good. I, I did see what, what I thought to be a bit of a barb on Twitter today with uh, Councillor Morrison uh, posting to uh, to Al Magni and saying, "See, look, you finally solved the problem." And uh, and, 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 and I certainly thought that was was, was a bit of a. Uh, I, I don't know. I, I think uh, Councillor Morrison's a funny guy, but if if you read that, the rock. If you read that the wrong way, it looked like a bit of a cheese. So, uh, so I certainly enjoyed that, and uh, you know, I, I think that's a good news story to uh, to end our show on. So, uh, with that being said, thank you once again for joining us on Windsor's Inside Pulse. Please remember to subscribe to the podcast and join us on Facebook at Windsor's Inside Pulse for show updates. Thanks for joining us. Have a great week, and we will see you next week. <laughs>